welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and down the line from Bernstein Research, we have Chirantan Barua. Also talking to us from New York is Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who's been in conversation with Bill Harris, the CEO of San Francisco-based company Personal Capital. This week, we'll be looking at the latest results from the European banks, particularly the investment banking results and what they tell us about the health of European banking. Secondly, a look at the latest developments in the whole Brexit debate, particularly comments by Andrew Tyree, the head of the Treasury Select Committee. And finally, that interview that Ben has done with Bill Harris of Personal Capital, which is one of the new robo-advisors in the US. First, though, to that topic of the European banks. Martin, quite a few of them have been reporting over the past week or so. And I suppose in some ways, a pleasant surprise for once. They haven't been all doom and gloom. That's right. They were better than expected results from Barclays, Deutsche Bank in particular, last week, where they were helped by their investment banking businesses, and in particular, their fixed income commodities and currencies trading operations, where both banks have traditionally been strong players. And they were lifted by a surge in activity in those sectors, very much like their main American rivals on Wall Street, which also enjoyed a very strong uplift in trading in credit in particular. Actually, the US banks outperformed the Europeans still. Their growth was higher than that supported by Barclays and Deutsche. Some European banks didn't enjoy such a big surge. UBS, which is much more equities-focused than debt-focused, didn't have the same big jump in its investment banking revenues. And similarly, Standard Charter, which this week has reported results, did have a moderate increase in revenues, but nothing like the levels that the Deutsches and and Barclays and the Wall Street banks had, because it's more focused on emerging markets rather than US and European. Well, let me bring our guest Chirantan Barua from Bernstein into the conversation now. Chirantan, welcome. Thank you for joining us. What do you take away from these results? Are they a defining moment for the European banks or is it just simply them benefiting as the US banks did from a pretty benign market in the third quarter? I would be in the latter camp. Sorry to be the party pooper, but basically the kind of volatility that we've seen in Q3, if that kind of volatility continues, then basically the macro factors become destabilizing. So if I just take a step back and I look at what drove the performance, it was both the volatility post-Brexit that we saw and also the steepening of the yield curve, which meant that DCM issuances year-on-year absolutely were out of the blocks. Now, those things to sustain is extremely difficult going forward into different quarters. Also, on the other hand, remember, all the European broker-dealers operate with balance sheet constraints because they're all leverage constraint. And what we've seen in Q2 and Q3 is the banks throwing up a lot of balance sheet. Now, the capital problem for these broker-dealers is not solved, so you can't keep on increasing your balance sheet, otherwise you run into a capital problem. So basically, volatility unsustainable, right? And we have balance sheet problems, so going forward, extremely hard to see this run continue. But what we've definitely seen is how much you can sweat the balance sheet in good times. So Q3 gives us that, you know, kind of a benchmark. But I think it's more the ceiling rather than the floor. We're a month or so into the fourth quarter. What can you say about the likelihood of the third quarter trends being maintained? 
If you look at market indicators, both in terms of DCM issuances, I'm only talking about FIC here. Then you look about volatilities in the FX markets and credit markets. It hasn't been as strong as Q3. Obviously, we've got a big event coming up next week, which is the U.S. presidential elections, which makes the line a little bit unmodelable. But if it was very strong, you'd have heard it from the CEOs in the quarterly calls. You haven't seen them commenting on Q4 like they did in Q3 on the back of Q2. So chances are that it's not going to be as strong as Q3. Let me ring Martin in. Yeah, just to say that the third quarter of 2015 was incredibly weak. So they've all benefited from a pretty easy comparator with the year-on-year period. As Chirinton says, crucial will be whether the momentum can be sustained into the fourth quarter. Also point out that Barclays benefited from the weakness of the pound. It reports in in sterling and a lot of its revenues are in dollars. So it benefited from that one-time increase in revenues there. And you would expect Barclays and Deutsche to do well. If they didn't do well in that market, then they're never going to do well. So I think a lot of people feel that we'll need to see several more quarters of sustained progression from the big European investment banks before people change their mind about their relative underperformance compared to the Wall Street banks. Let me just go back to Chirantan for a final word on the outlook for the various European banks, some of which we've been talking about. What is your favourite pick, just to put you on the spot, for the next 12 months, let's say? I have very few favorites among. I have much more short ideas than long ideas right now, Patrick. But the only one that I like, as I've said, long standard chartered short Lloyds has been my trade this year. And I think that continues in the next year. Much more positive outlook on emerging markets, given both the Brexit scenario that you're discussing next, as well as kind of the macro environment and the fee income we've seen in Q3, which we say is unsustainable, makes it very hard for me to find some of these European banks interesting. Well, on a rather downbeat note, let me say thank you, Chirantan, for joining us. That's the perfect segue into the second item on today's agenda. Martin, you've been talking to Andrew Tyree about Brexit. The chair of the Treasury Select Committee has been expressing some frustration with the government's tactics over Brexit negotiations. Yeah, a sign of a rift within the ruling Tory party over the strategy, I think it's fair to say, on the Brexit negotiating position that the government is adopting. Andrew Tyree, who's one of the most influential backbench MPs, told me that this secrecy that the government is maintaining around its negotiating position is extremely unhelpful and causing damage to the UK economy because it's creating uncertainty and it's hurting the country's ability to attract investment and causing big companies to question whether they should move some activities out of the UK. Well, let's hear exactly what Andrew Tyree had to say. We're leaving and we need to begin a discussion about where we want to arrive. It's a good idea to have it worked out and to have discussed it with the passengers and crew before you take off. That's why Parliament is right to want to be involved and it should be permitted to express a view. Not on Article 50, but Parliament should express a view on the main planks of its negotiating position. I think that will immeasurably, certainly strengthen our hand. I think the Uncertainty is carrying a price in any case. You've only got to look at what the BBA and Nissan and others are saying. A very large numbers of firms are saying this, and I don't think they're all making it up. And I think that the arguments for secrecy probably derive 
from the inability at the moment to get to agreement more than they do from any deep belief that this will add to our negotiating strength. I'm being told informally that a number of continental banks and financial counterparties, not only banks, may well start lobbying their own governments for exactly the same, because they've recognised the deleterious shock effect for them. But that process can't be put underway until we clarify our broad direction of travel. So the strength of the points that they might want to make to their own governments is weaker. Now, Martin, this latest pronouncement from Andrew Tyree is not in a vacuum. I mean, there's a lot going on behind the scenes in terms of companies and financial organisations in particular, isn't there, right now? Yeah, and there was some good news recently from the Japanese car maker Nissan, which has committed to building two new models up in its plant in Sunderland, potentially expanding that plant. So that's been welcomed by some of the Brexiters as a ringing endorsement of the prospects for the UK even after Brexit. However, Mr Tyree warned that he's heard from the British Bankers Association, the main lobby group for the banks, that executives have got their hands quivering over the relocate button. And he feels that this uncertainty around the government position is hampering our efforts to keep companies investing in the UK. And also, he feels that it's hampering the ability of continental European businesses to lobby their own governments, because the answer from those governments, if they were to lobby them, would be just, well, we don't know what the British want. So he's calling for much more transparency and a full and proper debate in Parliament over that. And this week we've seen more pressure being applied to the government by the Japanese ambassador to the UK, who said, with reference to the Nissan announcement, more than general reassurances are called for at this stage to ensure the Japanese investment presence in the UK is not diminished for lack of consultation and information sharing. So a plea there for more information from the Japanese. One more bit of good news that we should mention, of course, is at least to maintain stability, Mark Carney's agreement to stay on for an extra year beyond the original five-year term to 2019 at the Bank of England. There was a lot of concern in the city in particular that had Mark Carney chosen to leave as originally planned in 2018, having come under pressure from some Brexiters to leave early, that would have caused ructions in the currency markets in the short term, but also among investors, I think, as well. Yeah, he's staying longer than he initially planned, but he's not staying as long as he could have done. And so it's a bit of a compromise there. He's leaving shortly after the UK is expected to leave the EU. So there could still be some volatility around at that time, but it's better than leaving halfway through the Article 50 process. Indeed. Let us move on to our third topic. Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to one of the biggest new players in the so-called robo-advice market. These automated investment advisors have expanded rapidly in the US in recent years, attracting mostly younger customers with the promise of managing their money at a fraction of the cost of a human being. Personal capital is, as I say, one of the biggest newcomers, and Ben has been talking via Skype to Bill Harris, the CEO of the San Francisco-based company. Bill, thank you very much for joining us. I'd like to talk about the growth of the um, automated investment world. We've spoken in the past on this podcast to Betterment, who have accumulated billions of dollars of assets under management in quite a short order. But personal capital is different. Explain to us how you're different. We're different in uh, two important ways. First is that we combine both software and human assistance, dedicated financial advisors. And that allows us to do much more complicated financial planning for people. And we typically serve people who have more complex financial lives. 
And so, for instance, the typical user of a Betterment or a Wealthfront is a millennial and is someone who, for many people, this is their first investing experience outside of a 401k. Our people tend to be 30s, 40s, and 50s. They have more complicated financials. They're building careers. They're building families. And we go much deeper into both the software and also the personal service that goes with that. That sounds a costlier service you're providing. How is that reflected in the fees you charge? Uh, the fees are higher. They're about 89 bips uh, going down to 49 bips, depending on the asset size, mm-hmm. whereas the others are less than 40 bips typically. And just to go over the AUM figures again, you said that you've grown about a billion in the last six months. Yeah. So March 1st, we hit uh, 2 billion. September 1st, we hit 3 billion. And so an annualized growth rate of about 125%. Right. And if I were a broker in a traditional brick and mortar wealth management firm, I'd be terrified of that. How are they responding? Well, almost all of them are looking at this area, but only a few are responding. So Vanguard, Schwab, I think are the two leaders in putting out responses to the robo capabilities. Still, we don't see anybody who is doing this elegant blend of both software and people. And can you describe the interaction between the software and the people? Talk us through a, a use case scenario. Sure. Well, the very first thing we do is aggregation. And so we're going and electronically collecting information for each user from all of their financial institutions. And that's not just investment. It's also banking and credit card information. So we bring all of your disparate accounts together in one place. And the average affluent American household has in excess of 15 financial accounts. So the first thing we do is let people see what they've got and see what's going on in their money. Then we've got financial planning software that is automatically populated with that data. And then the client can use that software on their own and or they can work with a financial professional to build a financial plan in the software. And one of the cool things about how that is built is that we're doing screen sharing. So the advisor and the client can both see the same data-rich screens at the same time. And whenever I do speak to the big brokers about this, uh, the rise of the, of the robo or the automated investment advisors, uh, that's uh, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, Wells Fargo, they all say that uh, these guys are, yes, they're growing very fast now, but the cost of customer acquisition is just too great to them. That they're going to burn out before long. Is there a good response to that? How are you keeping your costs down? Yeah, well, our customer acquisition is actually um, you know, quite economic. And the biggest reason is that we offer this free software that allows people to aggregate all their information and get the analytics that that automatically come with it. And so what we do, you know, we've got 1.2 million registered users for this software. And that ends up being the pool that we use to attract people to actually come and let us manage their money. And let's talk about the competitors. I was looking on NerdWallet, the online finance advice site just now. They said there's a couple of hundred automated investment advisors out there all looking to manage portfolios for less than a traditional brick and mortar broker. So when does the shakeout begin? Are we beginning to see it? Oh, I think probably, you know, the people who have, I think, critical mass are three, ourselves, Betterment and Wealthfront. And then, of course, a couple of the traditional players, notably Schwab and Vanguard. And what impact has there been of the uh, Department of Labor's fiduciary rule, which, as I understand it, the big brokers tell me that it's going to steer more people into these automated advisors. Are we beginning to see that? Oh, yes, I think so. And it's not necessarily into the automated services, 
but it is from old brokerage relationships to true advisory relationships where you do take a fiduciary duty not to do what's best for the firm or the broker, but rather to do what's best for the uh, client. Okay. And just finally, Bill, thanks for your time again. Where's this firm going to be in two or three years? Well, I think that um, we're going to have a combination of the best of the new breed and the fleetest of foot of the traditional players, all seeing very strong growth, billions of dollars of assets collected in this new sphere. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin here in the studio, Chirantan Barua of Bernstein Research, who is our guest, also Andrew Tyree in Absentia for his contribution, the head of the Treasury Select Committee, and also Ben and his guest, Bill Harris in the US. Remember that you can keep up to date with the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.